Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. We've told you about the benefits of adding worm castings to your garden soil, and we've also told you about the limited lifespan of bagged worm castings that you can buy. So maybe you ought to become your own worm farmer and harvest the freshest worm castings available. It's called vermicomposting. It's a great way to recycle your leftover fruits and vegetables from the kitchen while creating a product that will add life to your soil. Oh, and the worms won't wake you up in the middle of the night yelling for more kitchen scraps. They're really quiet. It's Worm Bin Basics on today's show. Also, America's favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, tackles a question from a listener about a distorted rose flower. Is it due to an insect? A disease? An accidental spray of weed killer? Or something else? Oh, look what you've done now. You made the dogs bark. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Labutalon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast brought to you today by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. You've heard us talk on this program about vermicomposting, about composting with worms and the benefits of worm castings, which is basically worm poop. Maybe you're not quite convinced. Maybe you think it's a big mystery. Maybe you don't want to get your hands dirty. I'll give you some good reasons to get your hands dirty. Actually, I'm going to let Susan Mucky tell you why you want to get your hands dirty with worms and worm castings. She's a Sacramento County Master Gardener. We're here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, standing pretty close to the worm bins. Susan, why do people need to start vermicomposting? First of all, it'll get rid of a lot of your produce waste. Um, my husband and I, we're not vegetarians, but we probably two to three times a week create a, at least a couple of pounds of broccoli parts and carrot peels and potato peels and apple cores. And so instead of that going into the garbage, it goes into my worm bin, which produces the most fantastic worm compost. A worm bin is a fairly simple operation, too. It, it basically needs a little bit of bedding, a little bit of food, a little bit of worms, and you put your bin in a place where the temperature is fairly moderate, not too hot, not too cold. That's correct. For bedding, what we like to use is either shredded newspaper and not the shiny stuff. Also, we put the comics in there because the worms enjoy the jokes. And you can use any other newspaper because they generally are using soy-based ink and the comics are also soy-based ink. So that's one type of bedding you can use. Another type is pine shavings or fir shavings. And you do not want to use redwood or cedar because those are natural insecticides and so you don't want to use those. Another thing you can use is cardboard. You all shop at Amazon. I'm sure. So just take the tape off of the Amazon boxes and you can just 
tear them up and the worms will be very happy with that. Another thing that you can use as well is dry leaves and just kind of moisten that and they'll be very happy to live in those types of environments. Would you moisten the cardboard first? You could moisten it first or you could put a whole bunch of stuff in a wheelbarrow and, and kind of let it all soak. In fact, we oftentimes recommend that because your worm bin, which I'm going to talk about in a second, is going to have holes in it. And so it's good to wet your bedding in a wheelbarrow so it all gets nice and moist and every part of it gets moist. And then you can put it into your worm bin. So the cardboard, you would do that too. You would kind of cut it up or shred it up and then put it in the in your wheelbarrow as well as the leaves or the, the newspaper shredding or the fir or pine shavings and just kind of get it all moist. And then you can put it into your worm bin. We'll have a link in today's show notes to a very good book about getting started with worm castings and vermicomposting called Worms Eat My Garbage by Mary Applehoff. So we'll have a link to that if you want that. There's a lot of good information too about uh, worm composting at uh, the Master Gardener website. Yes, we have a garden note on how to start set up your worm bin, the things to put in your worm bin, the types of foods that they like, the types of foods that they do not like. And then we also have the Sacramento County Master Gardener YouTube channel, and there's two worm composting videos, and it shows you exactly what to do, how to set it up, what your bin should look like. So there's a lot of information there. We'll have links to those, too, in today's show notes. So let's talk about uh, some of the foods that they like and the foods that they don't like. You talked about throwing in broccoli and apple cores, things like that. Do you have to chop them up real small or put them in a blender first? It depends on what kind of a worm parent you are. If you are a, a helicopter mom or dad, then you might blend it up. It will be more accessible to the worms because worms do not have teeth. They they have to have it in, in a sort of a liquid form. Form. They do have a gizzard, but and that kind of uh, grinds up anything that that they sucked in accidentally, and that that'll help them. But they have to wait till things get really yucky. The things that they like best are what are in, in the back of your refrigerator vegetable drawer. The things that look absolutely disgusting—that's what they can re really easily access. Think of a straw. They're kind of sucking in all this food through a straw. Things that they like are the organic things that you eat, such as peels, tea bags. Um, well, you don't eat the tea bags, but you drink the tea. Uh, I cut off the, the staples and I put that in there. Coffee grounds are great. Let me talk about what what they don't like. They do not like pineapple. They do not like garlic. They do not like onions. Those are a little bit too pungent. Don't put in any kind of citrus peel because of the rind has an oil around it and that's harmful to the worms. You can put in the actual fruit, but it's the oil around in the rind, the oil rind. Those are things that would be harmful to the worms. But anything else, no meats, no oily foods, none of that, because you're going to attract rats and they won't eat it. You'll have rats in your worm bin. What's interesting, too, is in some publications, they talk about limiting certain uh, fruits and vegetables. For instance, uh, they do talk about uh, limiting citrus. Now, you mentioned about the peels, but even the citrus themselves, I guess, should be limited. Right. I never feed my worms 
uh, anything that is too much. Like say, say you have an orange tree that you're tired of oranges. You got all these oranges all over the place. Don't ever put that in your worm bin. In fact, anything, uh, a whole lot of tomatoes. When you're canning tomatoes, all those peels, don't put too much in there. You, you want variety. Uh, the worms actually like things like cantaloupe. They're like children. They like sweet things. They kind of leave the broccoli to last. And I've even read where some people don't even put broccoli in there. So uh, one thing about your worm bin is you don't want to put too much in there at one time because you will be creating a hot compost pile and you will kill your worms. Ah, that's a good point. Now, you mentioned that they don't like onions. What about onion greens? They'd probably be okay. I think they just don't like anything that's real pungent. All right, that makes sense. And, of course, it, you can spot it right away when you lift the top off and you see things that are uneaten or undigested. That's sort of a hint that they don't like those. Exactly. Another thing that I do is um, when I have a, a, uh, a cantaloupe, I take out all the seeds because what happens is you, you throw the seeds in there into your in your worm bin. Next thing that you, you get is you lift up the lid and you've got a cantaloupe farm going. Now, it's perfectly okay because what you do is you just pick up all the, the stuff and then you just put it back in there and they'll eat that. But <laughs> I just avoid it. What about starches, uh, potatoes and rice, things like that? Should that be limited? You can put those things in there. If you've uh, seasoned the potatoes or the rice or even your salads, you don't want to put that in there because that might things that are in there might be harmful. All right, especially oils. Especially oils, yeah. So if, you, if you're really gung-ho about putting every single little scrap of your waste into your worm bin, wash off those salads to get all that salad dressing off. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this podcast. My criteria, though, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, and a product I would buy again. And you know who checks all those boxes? It's Smart Pots. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Smart Pots are sold around the world and they're proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots come in a wide array of sizes and colors and can be reused year after year. Some models even have handles and that makes them a lot easier to move around the yard. Because the fabric breathes, Smart Pots are better suited than plastic pots, especially for hot climates. That breathable fabric has other benefits too. Water drainage issues? Not with Smart Pots. Roots that go round and round choking the root ball like they do in plastic pots? Doesn't happen with Smart Pots. These benefits will help you get a bigger, better plant than what you've gotten in the past with the same size plastic or other hard container. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers as well as select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com fred. And don't forget that slash fred part. On that page are details about how for a limited time you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED. F-R-E-D. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of SmartPots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount, SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. 
right, now let's talk a little bit about care of this worm bin. There's going to be this wonderful product called leachate that comes out uh, of the uh, spigot that you should have at the bottom or near the bottom of your uh, worm bin, and you need a place to put it. Now, you see, and since I'm a master gardener, I have to tell you what UC tells us. UC says, don't use it. You don't, it hasn't been researched. And so everybody's leachate in every worm bin is going to be different. And there's absolutely no way to research it. However, and I'm not talking as a master gardener, what I do, if I have a bunch of it, I will dilute it and I just might put it around some trees, but nothing that I would be eating. Just in case. Just in case. That's right. All right. So there, there is that liquid that you do have to empty now and then. And I would think, too, that maybe there might be a pest problem every now and then. Yes. So if your worm bin gets dry, you will see a whole lot of ants. If you see ants, you know you need to check the moisture level of your worm bin. The other thing is, if your worm bin gets too dry, then you need to check to make sure you haven't killed all your worms. Because they will dry out. They need moisture for their... Because their skin is kind of... a a liquidy kind of thing if you've ever touched a worm and they're they're not dry they're kind of moist and so those are things that can happen if your bin gets too dry if it gets too wet it's possible that the worms will drown and so you don't want that to happen Let's talk about the variety of worms that are best for vermicomposting. And let, let's talk, too, about another worm that's in the news, the jumping worm, sometimes called the Alabama jumping worm, that uh, is spreading. And it's a worm that literally jumps. We'll have a link to a YouTube video where you can see how squirmy and jumpy these uh, jumping worms are. But they're not good for anything because uh, they eat too much. Probably, yes. I, I think I've read a little bit about them, but I'm not too sure. But I will tell you what kind of worms we like. The Sacramento County Master Gardeners, we go for the red wigglers, and they're also called manure worms. And the reason that these are really good is they survive very well in Sacramento. They like our climate. Um, they're very successful in f between 40 degrees and 80 degrees. And so that's a pretty much what we can count on here in Sacramento. If it gets too hot, you might want to bring your worm bin in or put it in a cooler area. If it starts raining a lot, you may want to cover it so that the worm bin doesn't get too wet. There are some people who do have their worm bins right there in the kitchen with them. Exactly. We knew a lot of state workers that had them under their desks. <laughs> and as long as you maintain it well, you don't have fruit flies, you are be in good shape. One thing I wanted to mention is when you're setting up a worm bin, you can use just about anything. Um, we have a wooden one here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. And most of the time, if you go online, you'll see plastic bins. But if you don't want to spend a lot of money, you can just get a any kind of uh, storage bin, but make sure that the the sides are not clear. Um, they have to be dark because the worms like a dark environment. And you just put a bunch of holes in the bottom and the sides, and that's to let out the extra moisture. Usually quarter inch is the size that I use, and I might drill maybe 50, 60 holes. 
and the worms don't crawl out? If they like it, think of the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And so that's kind of what it is. They will stay. I shouldn't say they will come. They will stay in your worm bin. It's like paradise for them if you maintain it well. Now, there is a difference between earthworms and compost worms. Earthworms are in the soil. They're, think of them as traveling vertically. They go up and down. They aerate the soil. Um, they bring stuff that the, the roots of the plants like to them. And, and so that's, you don't ever want to put those worms in your worm bin because they won't like it. Think of the worms that you might see in leaf litter in the fall when it rains and the leaves have fallen. You might see, you might lift up some leaves and you'll see a whole bunch of worms. Those are probably the red wigglers. And think of those as being horizontal worms as opposed to vertical worms. They are garbage eaters. They eat at the top of the soil. They're not interested in the dirt. There are worms available commercially, and one word of warning, there: if, if you think you're going to go to a, a fishing supply store to buy your uh, red wigglers, make sure they are red wigglers, because some of these places have been selling the jumping worms. Yes. Yeah, make sure, because a lot of times we've also seen some people buying worms, and, you know, to, to a, uh, a fishing supply store, a worm might be a worm might be a worm. They might not know what they are, and so they, they might be selling you earthworms. Right. I guess another term for fishing supply store would be bait shop. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, every time somebody says, oh, you, you grow worms? And I they say, oh, I'm a fisherman, and I close my ears. <laughs> Compost worms are a little bit small to be trying to get on a hook. They are. They are. But they're, they're great. They're also, I don't know if I mentioned it, but they're also called manure worms. And if you go, if you ever go on a, a really fun field trip to, to a, a worm farm, what they do is they bring in all of the cow manure, and when once it cools down in the beds, they'll that's where they put these red wigglers, and the red wigglers eat this manure, and they produce the castings, and that's why they're called manure worms. By the way, harvest day here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center in Fair Oaks Park in Sacramento County is coming up the first Saturday in August. It's a free event. You come out here, you can talk to Susan more about worms and vermicompost composting and composting in general and just enjoy everything that's out here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. There's vegetables, there's fruit trees, there's perennials, there's herbs, there's vineyards, there's a little bit of everything. If you do anything in the garden, you're going to find a sample of it here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. And again, the big free event Saturday, the first Saturday in August, it's harvest day here. We haven't talked about the payoff yet when it comes to why we need a worm bin, and that's worm casting. Okay. Well, it makes the most incredible compost. Now, we can't really call it fertilizer because it doesn't have enough percentage of the nutrients, the NPK that you're going to see on regular fertilizer. But the reason we like it as a compost is because it's never hot. Sometimes if you go and get compost from a, a yard somewhere, you have to be really careful because it could not be fully decomposed and, and it might get really, really hot and it could burn your plants and you don't want that. So we can use it as a, as a, um, I use it mostly as a soil enhancement. It breaks up the soil, especially if you've got clay soil. 
Of course, nobody in Sacramento has clay soil, right? Oh, yeah, nobody has clay soil. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll really improve your soil. And and what it does is it it helps the, the microbes and it actually helps the nutrients to become more accessible to the plant roots. Now, what a lot of people have taken to doing, uh, worm castings when they come out of the bin are, are rather wet. But if you just sprinkle it, if you can get a half-inch layer on your garden, that's excellent. But then cover it with some sort of mulch, like like a leaf mulch, to help uh, keep it moist. Exactly. And one thing, let, let's go into something else, too, that um, we just found out. If you go and you buy worm castings in a store, you're not going to know. You're going to pay a lot for them, and you're not going to know. How long is those worms? worm castings been in that bag? How long did it take to get to the store? How long has it been in a warehouse? Now how alive is it? We'll have a link to the show in which we discuss that very study and the answer is you got 60 days to use it before it goes bad. Right, and and how many times have you seen a date on a on a bag of worm compost? Well, we don't know if, if there was a date, if that was the sell-by date, the manufacturing date. Uh, you it's everything from when they harvested those worm castings to shipping it to the store. How long is that period? Who knows? Who knows? I always think of that old commercial where fellow, that older fellow does uh, oatmeal. It's the right thing to do. Well, that's what I think about with worm composting. It's the right thing to do. First of all, you're taking your waste and you're, you're putting it to good use. You're putting it back into the soil and it, it's the right thing to do. Wilford Bremley, fan club president right here. Susan Muckey, also Sacramento County Master Gardener. And you know she loves worms because she described a visit to a worm farm as exciting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> actually, I've been to a couple of them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, actually, they are kind of neat. Oh, they are. They're really exciting. And and one thing, uh, this is sort of an aside. Farmer Fred didn't know I was going to talk about this. But up in Oregon, I went to the Glide transfer station. I guess that's kind of a recycling type plant. I don't know. But anyway, what they're doing is they're gathering organic materials, probably from the restaurants, and the veterans are actually having a worm composting business. What they're doing is making worm compost out of all this, this produce, uh, scraps, and then they're, they're turning around and selling it to benefit the veterans. And this is up in Glide. It's actually in Roseburg, Oregon. I wish most of the the recycling plants around here would do something like that. Susan Muckey, Sacramento County Master Gardener. She has the lowdown on worms. If you come out to Harvest Day, you can pick her brain about the best worms and more about worm castings and compost as well. Susan, thanks so much. You're very welcome. You may have listened to our chat with Master Gardener Susan Muckey about how to start a worm bin, but she brought up one issue about an intruder to your worm bin or your compost pile. They're called soldier flies, and when you first see them milling about in the worm food or in your compost bin, you might recoil a bit. Adult soldier flies are rather large, almost an inch long, and they look more like a wasp than a fly. And you don't want to confuse soldier flies with the beneficial insect, the soldier beetle. So what are those soldier flies doing in your worm bin or in your compost pile? Are they good or bad? And should you remove them? You might be surprised at the answer. In fact, the entrepreneurial among you might even want to start raising soldier flies for profit. 
It's all about soldier flies in the next Beyond the Basics newsletter and podcast. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Beyond the Basics newsletter. It's coming out Friday, July 1st. Find it via the link in today's show notes or visit our website, gardenbasics.net. There you can find a link to the newsletter in the tabs at the top of the page. Also, you can listen to any of our previous editions of the podcast, as well as read an enhanced transcript of the podcast episode that you're listening to now. It's at GardenBasics.net, where you can also link to the Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And it's free! Look for it on Friday, July 1st. Take a deeper dive into gardening with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. Find it at GardenBasics.net. Here on the Garden Basics podcast, we like to answer your garden questions. Recently, Holly wrote in with a picture to the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page and left this for Debbie. So I guess... Debbie will be answering the question. <laughs> Debbie Flower, retired college horticultural professor, is with us. And Holly asks, Debbie, any idea what's causing this mutation? By the way, it just occurred to me that she might be referring to um, Master Rosarian Debbie Arrington. Ah, there you go. <laughs> but I, I, I feel you're qualified, too, to answer this as well, Debbie Flower. Oh. No, Debbie Arrington definitely knows her roses. So. Yes. Any idea what's causing this mutation? And the picture is of a very distorted red rose flower. It's a red rose flower. And then in the center, there are some green parts. And I suspect what's happening is something called proliferation or bullheading. And it is a mutation. It happens typically just to the first uh, roses that appear on a plant in spring. Its cause is not well known, not understood. But once that is you deadhead, meaning you remove the spent flower of the rose, the next set of roses that come up on that plant will probably not have the problem. Some uh, cultivars or types of roses are more prone to this problem than others. It typically only happens in spring. Now, one thing to maybe understand is that flowers are modified leaves and they've been modified in nature to attract the pollinator. And sometimes we'll see a green come up in the middle of a flower, and that's just one of those petals that didn't get modified. It just came out as a leaf. But in bullheading and, and proliferation, it's the cells, they're called the apical cells. The apex is the tip. So the cells at the tip of the, the branch or, or the tip of the flower continue to divide and make more petals and more petals and more petals. And you can end up with actually multiple flowers within the same flower. It's usually two. Sometimes you end up with three flowers. And they each flower has around it what's called the sepals or the other modified leaves that protect it when it's in bud. And so you get this mishmash of colorful petals and then green petals and then colorful petals, green petals if you have a third flower in the same head. So don't panic. It's not a big deal. If you don't like the look of it, cut that flower off. You don't need to cut the branch. The branch should produce regular looking roses uh, after that one has been removed. And the cause is, as I said, the cause is unknown. Some people think it's physical damage, possibly by an insect, or it's due to temperature, which is the one I would favor, or a virus. If it happens over and over and over and over again on that plant, it's more likely to be a virus, but realize that roses live very happily with viruses in their system and it isn't something to worry about. 
And as far as temperature goes, uh, I imagine a, a late frost after the flower started forming might be a possibility, too. Yes. Uh, flower buds are parts of the plant that are most sensitive to cold. And so if, if you do get a late frost and we had kind of we had some very cold nights there for mm -hmm. in March uh, while that flower is forming in the bud, then that can cause the problem. Yes. How would you differentiate what you have been describing from glyphosate damage, from Roundup damage, if somebody was using a weed killer around their roses and uh, some of the drift uh, caught on to uh, one of those buds, would, would that damage look different? The times I have seen glyphosate damage uh, on plants, it causes parts to become thinner and more strappy. And it would not just be on the flower, it would be on the leaves as well. So you wouldn't just have a distorted flower, you'd have distorted leaves. And if it blew in from a spring application while the plant was actively growing, it would be on one side, whatever side that received the glyphosate through the wind. And so it would be flowers and leaves. If the glyphosate came into the plant while the plant was in the flower bud, then the petals would likely be very thin and long. If it came while the plant was already had leaves, and flowers on it, they would become distorted, twisted, and the leaves would be as well. Basically, don't worry too much about it. And I guess if you don't like it, just cut off the flower head. Yes. All right. Debbie Flower, thanks so much for your help answering questions here on Garden Basics. You're welcome, Fred. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Garden Basics, it's available wherever podcasts are handed out. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, gardenbasics.net. And that's where you can find out about the free Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you so much for listening.